warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. It's the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Scott here, as usual. Stephen on a Skype line up in York. Hello, sir. Hello, mate. How you doing? You okay? Oh, living the dream. Wonderful, wonderful. And we've got a return appearance for our dear friend Anthony, down at the other end of the country, down in Kent. Hello, mate. Hello, guys. Hello, everybody, all your listeners. Including that one in Swaziland that I invented last time I was on. Do you know what? I think we have got one somewhere <laughs> down there. You know that. <laughs> you got one in Brazil, haven't you? There is one in Brazil. I think there's a couple in Vietnam as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, Stephen's choice this week. What are, we, what are we talking about this week, sir? We're talking about an inspector calls, which I haven't done one of my alliterative uh, descriptions of, but um, I can certainly give you the synopsis if you wish. Tell you what, let's have it now. Well, before we do the, the usual, let's do it in a slightly different order. What's, what's the plot of Inspector Calls, mate? Uh, when a young girl is found dead, an inspector is sent to investigate a prosperous Yorkshire household. It emerges that each member of the family has a guilty secret. Each one is partly responsible for her death. Let's play the trailer. I'm a police inspector, Miss Burling. This afternoon, a young woman drank some poison and died in the infirmary after great suffering, I'm afraid. Oh, how horrible. Was it an accident? Well, that's what we want to find out. Yes, well, don't tell me the girl committed suicide just because I dismissed her from my employment about two years ago. Well, did you? Yes, I did. She'd been causing trouble at the works. I was quite justified. I think you were. I wish you hadn't told me. What was she like? Yes, what was she like? Quite young, 24. Well, pretty? Not when I saw her today, Miss Burling, but she'd been pretty. Very pretty. I don't really see that this inquiry gets you anywhere, Inspector. It's what happened to her since she left Mr. Burling's works that is important. Obviously. And we can't help you there because we don't know. Are you quite sure you don't know? Are you suggesting that one of them had something to do with this girl? Yes. So you didn't come here just to see me, then? No. No, I'm afraid I'll have to ask you all a few more questions yet. And Inspector Calls, released in the UK 1954, directed by Guy Hamilton, familiar name to this podcast, starring Alistair Sim, Arthur Young, Olga Lindo, Brian Worth, Eileen Moore, Brian Forbes, Jane Wenham. Stephen has given us the plot to this. Now, Stephen, I know for a fact this is one of your favourite movies because you've mentioned this a couple of times before. Did you review it on your old podcast? No, we didn't. And I've been tentative about bringing it to this one. And same with 
yourself with certain films you want to bring it at the right time and make sure it gets a, a proper airing rather than it receiving a, a, a drubbing you, you get a bit precious about, about these things sometimes mm. um, I know Scott's that way with like Lawrence of Arabia and such that he's just he wants really really wants to review it but he also doesn't want to not do it perfectly it's also because nobody else's opinion is right mate. that's why well there's <laughs> that is the worry that somebody else is going to just be wrong and you're going to you're not going to be arguing with them you're just going to be explaining why you're right they're it's not they're not they're not going to get it in exactly and but um i had from experience of, of yourself scott and you anthony i had faith that doing it on an episode with anthony that it was probably going to be the the best chance we had um at least best chance i had <laughs> of me getting this a, a proper viewing and a proper response to it rather than it, it it not being responded to properly so you know i'm putting faith in in anthony there which i think is well placed but we'll see <laughs> we'll see whether this is his last last episode what do you think tony let's do it hypothetically what do you think tony would have thought of this i think he would have liked it didn't you steve i, I think he, i think he would have liked it and i think he would have seen the value in it and hopefully he would have picked up on some of the nuances i think the difficulty mm. might have been that he might not have seen it before and I think it's one of those th- films where having seen it before and seen it again or having other viewings of other versions or, or the original play or whatever does stand you in better stead and assuming both of you have at least seen it once before even if it was decades ago you've you've mm. seen it so sorry there I went into this knowing I'd seen it and I saw and it. it turned out you watched Inspector Gadget instead <laughs> I don't know why I watched because I remember watching it, I don't know, about three or four years ago, and I checked on Letterboxd, and I'd put a three-and-a-half-star rating on it. And as I'm watching it this time round, which was Friday evening, I don't remember a single thing about it. Not a thing. And it was like watching it for the first time. So God knows what condition I was in when I watched it three, four years ago. <laughs> and it was wonderful because it was like watching it for the first time. And, you know, it's got Alistair Sim, one of my favourite actors in it. And, all, and and it's, you know, that 1950s British drama. And as the plot unfolds, what you think might be starting off as an Agatha Christie type mystery becomes something completely different. <laughs> and it just kept me gripped from start to finish because I'm thinking, where on earth is this going? And the more the gets revealed through each separate character and the more you see the reaction or the manipulation of Alice the Sim using the characters, it just becomes something magical. So first time watch for me. What about you, Anthony? Was it your first, second time watch? No, I'd uh, I'd taped it off the telly years ago. I'd probably seen it I felt like I'd seen it five or six times and knew it pretty well and it's it's a wonderful thing that so many of these films that we review, uh, I knew really well from years ago. And then you watch them again, it all starts coming back. <laughs> but what was great about it was that I was remembering it. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, this I know this story. And I, I love those stories where you get a bunch of uh, toffs and they gradually get sort of unraveled. <laughs> Reminded <laughs> me of, um, it's sort of shades of, uh, well, Gosford Park has shades of this. A little mm-hmm. bit, I think. Because I remember yeah. I, was, I got the DVD of Gosford Park. I was listening to the commentary. And when, I think it's Stephen Fry is the inspector in that. He said, oh, basically, it's Inspector Calls from now. But what I didn't remember was the ending. Like, oh, no, I guess your listeners have already seen the film, but let's not spoil it anyway. But uh, yeah. that last image of the rocking chair, I think that should be one of the seminal images in British film. Maybe it is, but I don't yeah. feel like this, this film maybe gets lauded as much as it 
should. But Alistair Sim, for me, it's kind of all about him and just that look in his eyes. Yeah, that kind of slightly, that little smile and the sinister look, is it? that all-knowing look that he has, you know, that he does so well. Yeah, Mischievous as well, isn't he? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That twinkle. And, and he's not going through this, like, properly hard interrogating the people. He's, mm. he, he, there is a sadness to his approach, which is helped by his sort of slightly hand dog expression as you say very cleverly teasing things out on people with there's still authority to him which is why he's shooting down these toffs when they're trying to just play their don't you know i am i was you know lord mayor and, and etc but he's not going hard at them he's he's basically laying the traps like you said for them to fall into and, and reveal yeah. things and certainly there's a bit where he's talking to the mother of the family and she demands that he, he leave and that he um stops you know stops asking questions and he says oh i can't you know i can't do that and she says that she's not going to answer any more questions and he says oh, i'm not basically says he's not going to allow that and she it's adamant she isn't and then immediately just falls into the trap by then elaborating why not um, which is which is telling him all the stuff that he want that he was going to be asking her to to do, and so it and it does come across that he's not there to give them a, a hard going. He's there to prick their consciences, allow them to do the rest, really, uh, and that comes across yeah. perfectly. Yeah. There's this air of mystery right from the outset, and the fact that he's not conventional for, because from the the moment we meet him, he comes in through the back door. You know, he just appears as such, yeah. and you just get this impression. I think. It's remarked upon by one of the other characters somewhere in the, in the film that he knows everything about them you know yeah. and he's just keeping it to himself and he's picking the right time to reveal these little nuggets of information that's going to create the most like you said Stephen the most conversation or the most opportunity to, for them to reveal something that they had no intention of revealing you know they realize quite early on that this man knows stuff and there's no point in trying to hide anything and, and particularly the particularly the daughter who tries to warn some of the others saying you know don't say that you're gonna you're gonna regret it particularly to to a mother and that i think is is very perceptive of her when she she realizes that quite early on that it's all really a, a, a trap for their consciences and it is you know it is different to the to the player that he, he arrives in the way that he does because he more yeah. conventionally arrives at the door in 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 the player um, and similarly oh. at the, at, similarly at the end he just leaves conventionally and leaves the you know through the the door but certainly there's bits in this where he's he's saying about the younger character eric he's he's saying about him you know coming coming back and oh that's that's him now and he's you know he then he comes through and then he comes through the door you know he's that sort of is adding an element of a bit more a bit more spooky or, or making it a bit bit more that there's uh, uh an element where he's he's separated from the uh the others as far as mm-hmm. the, the supernatural or whatever and and certainly i mean in in the, in the original version he's not called pool he's called ghoul yeah um, I, I read that yeah. is there any is there any you know sort of like link with the word ghoul and ghoul you know well it's a it's a jb priestley who wrote this who's who's local appear to to me and and um, in Bradford, there is a, a town just down the road from both of us called Ghoul. So it's um, it, there's a, a local thing here in York that it was uh, very lucky that Roundtree's built their factory in York and not in Ghoul because it would have given a completely different name to the Yorkie bar. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> it took me a second there. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Sunday morning, don't worry. Oh, but um, but yeah, ghoul. I mean, obviously spelt differently, but certainly there is the the uh, supernatural uh, connotations to that. I don't think I've seen any real explanation of why it was changed for the, the film, unless it was just um, changing it from a, a northern place name to a southern place name because that was more mm. palatable to to people in London. But um, but yeah, it's it, the, there's the character has that otherworldly persona in a way that the the rest start realizing that certainly the daughter but it's not done in a, a forced way you know okay it's not mm. so subtle it's not so subtle isn't the plot in certain other areas with regards to its social commentary and mm. uh, and stuff which obviously appealed to me but in that way as far as it being a slightly supernatural character um that is is done more subtly at least initially yeah, yeah. i think also it's really calm as well i suppose if you had magical powers and you knew everything was going to happen you wouldn't you'd need <laughs> to get excited about it but that's what i kind of like about it he just sort of <laughs> calmly sits there and sort of lays all these traps and they all just keep digging a hole for each other for, for themselves in, sorry sorry, sorry mate yeah he's he's, mm. he's not intimidated by them this brings in that whole element of class that we're going to need to talk about probably now mm. like, it might be an ideal time mm. because obviously can't remember anything in my first watch of this so all of that swept over me but watching it this time i was fully aware of the class system and how it's represented by the different characters here you know he's obviously of a lower social class but he's not intimidated by the family at all you know he sits there he listens and as you say he's got that knowing look in his eye that he's got the power in this little group he has got a great hold on everything that's going to go on over the next hour and a half Mm. and it's just a remarkable performance from Alistair Sim throughout so as I say, remember that the family, you know, they're very prosperous and everything, but that just means they've got far more to lose. I mean, I was listening and to something. Is it is the father going for a knighthood or something? Or he's, he's tries to intimate that he's um, in line for for some, an honour um, when yeah. they're next announced, and part of that is because of the thing that he's he's kind of a victim of the the class system himself because of the fact that he's obviously the way he speaks, he, he's not. Uh, somebody who's from the posh end himself he's come up he's a bit more particularly in northern and he's then trying to explain to his prospective son-in-law who is sort of more old money he's trying Mm. to um say that your mother might not be looking upon our family as being you know worthy of you but just to let you know i'm you know and he's trying to say oh i might be uh getting an honor and stuff to try and give give himself a bit more airs and graces to get mm. social acceptance with his betters um as yeah. far as he perceives them and that's i think that it's showing that there's even the people who are perceived at being at the top there's always somebody above them yeah there's upper toffs and lower toffs yeah because he's made his money through his own hard work he's not inherited it at all or been born yeah it. so he's, he's made the money that the upper classes have but he hasn't got as you said Stephen the social status because he hasn't got a title as such no and I would argue he's made his money through other people's hardware but that's a different discussion slightly but yeah as, as far as he, he's perceiving it he's got that standing and but then he, he needs to try and aspire towards being accepted and this this is kind of key to the social classes at a certain point where you'd move from a stage where the the original aristocratic families had, had started losing a bit of 
um, status due to them you know, no longer having the money that they did because of the shift to the industrial from the agricultural. And it meant that the industrialist, like the lead character there, Mr. Burling, he's the new money in a, in a lot of ways. He's got the money that the, that the Crofts don't have. They've got the status, the titles and everything and the pedigree, which is why the marriage, you know, these kind of marriages went ahead. But he still feels like he has to justify himself when he's in front of those, even though he doesn't have to justify himself to anybody else in his entire life, even his own family. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's pointing towards a class system in a bit of a wider point there. But it's all done in in the background in some senses uh, when it comes to, to him, at least. Yeah. Because so, like the very first scene with the credits and the dinner table, because that sort of tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, this is sort of a very nicely set dinner table and this respectable conversation going on <laughs> about nightmares and things. Isn't there a line about thanking the cook as well or, or something that the daughter remarks on how good the meal was and he says something about you must thank the cook or I can't remember what he said but there was something again that's you know indicating this higher sort of like level that he thinks he's at and Mm. yes if I remember correctly if if I remember correctly one of them does mention about thanking the cook because somebody one of them thanks the the, the mother saying no oh, this is wonderful food mm. and then there's the comment oh yeah you must thank the cook and i can't remember whether that's the head of the household trying to just make the point yes we have a cook yeah uh, we're not doing this ourselves however it it is uh gerald croft who's the the more aristocratic old money um who yeah. is actually sort of pointing out yes that's you, you do thank the servants i don't know it's kind of virtue signaling isn't it about 60 years before that term was invented. yes yeah it is isn't it all yeah. the time yeah oh we're so respectable please thank the cook and maybe we'll put our wages up by a halfpenny an hour or something as well <laughs> Is there any significance to this being set in 1912? Because this isn't... There's a, well, J.B. Priestley, as, a, as an author, I mean, vast majority of his stuff was set around um, these years, the, the Edwardian mm. period. But there's, there is commentary within the, the film or the, the script that the inspector makes with regards to the, what the future is, is about to bring them with regards to this cosy advancement and the, the rosy future they're looking towards. That's and right. cer- certainly is, yeah. there's a discussion at the table, obviously, with regards to impending war and saying, no, the Germans Germans don't want that, there's too much to lose and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you imagine this is possibly a, a cusp of when maybe the, the youngest member of the, the household, Eric, is, is perhaps on the verge of having to go off to war and uh, the impact that might have upon the family in future. But um, that's certainly a bit of a, of a subject of some other plays that J.B. Priestley does. Um, yeah. But no, I think it's just a, a period at which J.B. Priestley set a lot of his stuff just because that was what he was comfortable writing about. I mean, he was somebody who was born in the Victorian times. Also, you you mentioning that the conversation or the comment that he makes about Germany and will never go to war, that's actually sort of a good indication that although he's the head of the household, he He's not as sort of like worldly wise as he thinks he might be, you know, despite mm. the fact he's got, you know, all, all this wealth and power now. Um, when it comes to current affairs or, you know, everyday situations, he, he really hasn't got his finger on the pulse, which is probably why when we get to sort of the, the, the first sort of flashback scene, which is the industrial dispute, he handles it so badly because he isn't really in touch with what's going on. Mm. Yeah. And when he's just asked a simple question by the victim of play, as it were, when he, he tries to justify not not giving a wage rise and he, he then she then questioned his his sort of rather simple answer. He's not able to elaborate and give any more to it because there isn't 
and he, he doesn't have any more understanding than, than the simplistics. And that's part of why he decides to take against it, because he's, he basically feels tricked by being exposed as only having limited knowledge. So I think you're right there that that's a, quite an indicator of him knowing his own feelings and, and the bluster behind behind that. He's not got the self-confidence. Talking about the victim, Eva Smith, or what was her other name? She had two names, didn't she? Um, Daisy Renton. Daisy Renton. I was just trying to think, because if you were to watch the stage version of this, Stephen, have you seen the stage production of this at all? I have, yes. Right. Yeah, so, was a, long, a long time ago, though. Right. And it, was, I'm assuming... it wasn't a professional one. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was the same, yeah. When I was at drama school, I watched it. And it, was, it was fun, though. Yeah, it's good. Okay, it was, right. it was Amdram, yeah. yeah. I haven't right. seen it, but I'm assuming, obviously, we don't see Eva Smith in the stage production. She's just spoken about isn't she by the other characters yes and shown in photograph to to the various characters but not to the audience right okay so there's, there's this air of mystery about this woman even more so in a stage production because yeah obviously we see her in flashbacks in this what do you think then you guys having seen sort of like a stage production in the movie version does it make it's, a great deal of difference having th- those flashbacks visually to see rather than having them described to you by each person i thought it might be nice like with the stage play again depending if, it, if it's amdram it's they're probably not going to bother but if it was a sort of a, a production with a little bit of budget I don't know they could have sort of put the curtain down or whatever they do in the theatre and, and had the scenes you know sort of intercut them and had those so I think I think it would have been nice to have seen them actually to be honest so it's nice to have them in the film yeah. Priestley obviously didn't write sort of flashback scenes they're all sort of narrative aren't they they're being described mm. by whatever person is talking about their interaction with Eva Smith yeah but I mean rather like Alistair Sim really it's all in the look that she has you know she doesn't necessarily have to do loads of acting in this, but she just looks the part. You know, she's got that sort of vulnerable but sort of quite spirited uh, look about mm-hmm. her. Because yeah. I'm just wondering, because there's this air of mystery, right, amongst all the family members, right, that mm. is it the same woman? Because they don't see the same, they don't see, you know, they're only shown an individual photograph each. Nobody sees each other's photo. But that air of mystery is removed because in the flashbacks, it's definitely the same actress. You know, it's... Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. But then the mystery is brought back in because Gerald Croft, the husband-to-be, or the son-in-law-to-be, um, yeah. comes back from speaking to the policeman and thinks he's discovered something, you know, a, a point to actually challenge this on, that it's all just uh, a spoof or it's... Um, a prank or, or a setup or something but i think it does add uh, an element seeing her and seeing um how she's behaving uh, you know i think there's worth to both ways because in the the play the way that she's being described does still show that she hasn't gone at any of the situations in the wrong way she hasn't mm. deliberately tried to trick anybody or, or or get money out of anybody. She's actually turned it down and stuff, whereby that coming from the, the lips of the person who's telling the story, that adds a bit of element to it that, that she's a victim, um, even more so. But seeing her, humanising it, I think you get to be able to see the face, like you say, see her mm. uh, actually going through the problems that she's going through and seeing how she actually does interact with the various different characters um, and other people out there. So I think there's worth to both sides, but I would say on, on balance, it, it benefits from seeing her 
um, like mm. it is in the film. Mm-hmm. I think the changes all the way through, all the changes that they've made in the film, I think are an improvement cinematically. Um, yeah, I, I could imagine though on the stage production because you don't see her face and she's only spoken about, and it takes a while for a couple of the characters to actually remember who this girl is. Mm. It, it just heightens that whole thing about lower classes or whatever the working class being invisible almost to yes. To, to be, I'm, I'm on the right lines here, aren't I? This is what I think Priestley would have said in, in the play, in the you know, that version of it. Um, because it takes a while for the father, you know, I know that name, I've heard that name, you know, and then it turns out that she works for him, but she's one of a couple of thousand workers, so you know. Mm. And then it takes a while for the daughter to realise that she's the shop assistant, that she gets sacked. You know, it's it's because they've got this this class system basically in place that and she is not worthy to be noticed, or you know, and, and that's just makes it a little bit different, I think, when when we talk about the different versions, like the play version and the and the screen version. Mm. <laughs> no, I, like, I like the fact that Sheila actually sort of almost like sees through the whole facade they live in. No, pretty early in the film, yeah. really. She, what did she say? I can't remember. Well, she sort of admits she was jealous. Uh, there's a real divide, isn't there? Because the two children, kind of, their consciences are pricked and they're sort of, they learn from the whole thing and then the parents are sort of bluffing their way through it, you know? Yeah, basically mm. what happens is the main characters that are sort of accused here, they're trying to deny that they're responsible for any wrongdoing, you know? Mm. And, but she realises pretty quickly, as you say, they cannot hide the truth because this inspector, he, he just seems to know everything, doesn't he? So there's no mm. point in lying. So she's a lot more insightful than the others early on. Mm. Yeah. And she retains that after, you know, even after the point at which some of them think it is a, a hoax or, or whatever and, and start reverting. She's there, there you know, like the uh, Jiminy Cricket character sort of the conscience. <laughs> yeah. She's there still saying, yeah. look, you know, whether it's true or not for a moment there, you learn something. Exactly. Yeah. You shouldn't lose that. Which is entirely appropriate and obviously part of the, really the point of the film, but because there's a line that's that's kind of almost mirrored, and I can't remember the exact wording of it, but there's a line that's spoken at the beginning and end of the film with regards to having responsibility for others around you, mm-hmm. um, you know, that with their members of, I think he describes it as a body, and being responsible for each other and sort of learning that as a, as a lesson, and there'll be a time when, you know, if that's not learned, there'll be, I think he just says fire and blood he sort of says at the beginning and at the end almost bookend in the film that you know that's a lesson to be learned you know either the easy way or the hard way and he's almost saying i'm giving you the easy way mm. <laughs> but it does seem like by by the father of the family that is something that that is kind of discarded as soon as he can because he's unreformable in some ways whereas as you've said the two children and we describe them as children but they you know they're clearly yeah. Uh, you know, 20 or, you know, 20 or, or whatever age. So they're not children, children. That They do retain the lessons. They are reformed by this, whether it's true or not. Yeah, she says something about the things we do to people without realising and all that. So, yeah, that was nice to see. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have been boring if they'd just all been in denial, you know. That, um, I think it was nice to get that conflict, if you want to call it that. She does say, doesn't she, I will never, ever do that to anybody again. Mm. But at the same time, you get this sense that she's still feeling sorry for herself rather than anybody else. Right, right. There is a part where she's, you know, that's where she's, she starts out at that she's is sorrow for herself rather than mm. sorry for what she's caused in somebody else. But she, she does come round to it, whereas the rest, not so much. Mm. Yeah, I was listening to um, 
I listened to a podcast about it yesterday, and then I turned it off, realizing it wasn't of our caliber. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were saying it was, Eric, be- Eric, it was better, was it? <laughs> it was the best. No, no, it wasn't. I was going to say it was a better one, was it? <laughs> no, it just didn't measure up. Now they were saying that Eric is the worst of the five characters. Yeah, now, I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I, I immediately thought of sort of uh, he's, he's like the Prince Harry of the family, isn't he? <laughs> Drowning his sorrows because he doesn't want to grow up in his bloody family. I think in a way he is the worst. I mean, although, yes, for me personally, sacking somebody for, for daring to ask for uh, collectively for, for higher wages does uh, mm. go against the grain for me. Um, and <laughs> yeah. getting somebody sacked from their job just because you didn't look right in a in a hat, you know, is, is not right. And turning somebody down because you don't believe their story when they're coming to, to ask for some charity or taking sympathy on somebody and then end up falling into a bit of a, of a relationship and then um deciding to to stop that i think mm. you know eric is the one who drunkenly takes advantage and implies that she he actually rapes her potentially so that could perhaps make him worse out of all right. of them if, if that's the, the connotation which it, it, it doesn't say it directly but it kind of does certainly say that he, he took advantage of her while he was drunk and forced himself on her mm. so I, w- I would say that that perhaps does make him the worst at least as far as uh, what he did to her but how how they're reacting to what they did and, and what kind of guilt they feel over it, he, I don't think, is the worst. It, right. it explains right. his behaviour at the beginning, though, as as the, the film progresses and we realise what's happened between him and Eva, that his drunken behaviour at the table is, is totally believable and understandable mm. because he knows obviously what's gone on the family know nothing about this situation with her whatsoever it's, it's implied that the, it's implied that his drinking has, has escalated and got worse yes rather than going out with the boys and getting drunk as any young man uh, does these days and probably did back then as well it's implied now that he's drunk almost all the time now and it, that seems to have started at the point at which this had happened with Eva so it's, is that the therefore that he is actually showing guilt in in a way even if it's the wrong way yeah yeah I like um <laughs> about the mother I think she brings like tough love to a new level doesn't she that's a really <laughs> brutal interview <laughs> And I think I th- one of the things I loved was the way they, um, she says, oh, the man who made you pregnant should be publicly exposed. She says, oh, like, if you want help, go to him. So that was a brilliant setup to the Eric story. That was really and, clever. And the daughter, and the daughter kind of realises at that point, this perception that we said that she's gained mm. um, uh, of what's to come. She she puts two and two together before anybody else does on that one. Mm. And there's kind, of, there's kind of a look from the inspector as if to say, yeah, you get it, but you won't be able to convince the rest until it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, again, is is very much in the expressions of Alistair Sim. Just amazing what he manages to convey in, in simple facial expressions, I think. What other things have you seen him in? Because I feel like I can't remember anything was, except Scrooge and this. St. Trinian's movies? Oh yeah, may have Green, seen. Green for Danger. Green for Danger. I'll be bringing, I'll be bringing mm. to the table at some point. Green for Danger. Cause there was another school one, wasn't there? Happiest Days of school, Their Lives. Yeah, yeah, Happiest Days of Their Lives is um, School for Scoundrels. I was, I was looking. The, the only other one I'd seen was this weird one called Geordie. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. About a Scottish strong man who competes in the Melbourne Olympics or something. It's really obscure. Yeah. Fantastic actor. Talking with cast. Mm. Should we should we take a walk up to the uh the Village Hall of Fame, chaps? Yeah. Yes.
Jangling keys. Jangling keys. Jangle, but... jangle, jangle. And Lennon said about the, you know, one oh, set of gloves and the and the others in the cheap seats rattle your jewellery. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Beatles reference. Well done. Can we yeah. leave that in? <laughs> <laughs> well, you obviously weren't going to do it for one. No, so. I wasn't. Okay, Stephen, if this was the stage production, it would be a very small cast, I'm assuming. But because of these flashbacks, we've got quite a few people in this, haven't we? Yeah, and some returning faces, which, you know, is quite nice as well. So we'll go through the cast of what is, and then um, I'll go back to what could have been because of who was oh, in okay. the original play, um, yeah. at least the original play that was that was done over here. With regards to people making their second appearances in this film, we've actually got five of them. Okay. We've got Pat Neal, who uh, previously was Night to Remember, so straight away in there. Hey! Night, night to Remember. <laughs> oh, uh, thank take God. That one off. Yeah. Take that one off straight away. So uh, JB Priestley, um, obviously because of previously doing uh, Last Holiday that we did. Of course, yes, forgot that. Yeah, Charles Sainer, who did Look Back in Anger. Alistair Sim. This is only the second one for Alistair Sim, which is surprising. Scrooge is the only one we've done. Uh, yeah, Scrooge. Yeah. yeah, and Catherine Wilmer, who was Look Back in Anger. But we do obviously have a few people who are making their third appearance. Oh, yeah. We've got Alwyn Brooks who was in Dunkirk and Night to Remember. Okay. Um, and we've got the magnificent and sadly uh, missed uh, George Cole. Yes. Um, who, oh, yeah, who yeah. there's about seven different films that um, Alistair Sim did that George Cole was in because he was his protégé and he, he basically um, kick-started his career because he, he liked him so much and wanted to advance him. So... He tried to get him a lot of things and Flash Harry as well as he was in Scrooge along uh, along with uh, Gideon's Day with the two films he's uh, previously appeared in for us. Jenny Jones, she was in Lolita and Look Back in Anger and then uh, the mother of the family, um, Olga Lindo, was in mm. Sapphire and Jill to the Night. So, oh, right, okay. Uh, so wow. We've got two people making their fourth appearance. Paul Phillips, who was uh, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember and Quatermass. And then George Woodbridge, who was Dracula, uh, Heavens Above and Revenge of Frankenstein. Now he was uh, in this, he was the chip shop owner. Yes, I recognised him straight away. Yeah. And uh, we've got quite a few people who are making their fifth appearance, actually. We've got Norman Bird. Recognised him. Uh, from Cash and Demand, uh, Legal Gentleman, Police, uh, Whistled Down the Wind. This is actually his debut as far as um, the first film he ever did. Okay. Um, yeah, recognised him Bird. as the, um, the so, form of the... Uh, so that's good. Yeah. Rini Cunliffe is... Carry on, Nurse, Night to Remember, One Good Turn and Seven Days to Noon. Mabel Effrington, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, Quatermass Experiment... Uh, and Wickerman, and then we've got the wonderful Brian Forbes, who we obviously recognised straight away when we saw him. Guns and Averone, League of Gentlemen, Quatermass 2, and of course, Vestless Natives, the little cameo he had in that. Um, didn't he direct Whistle Down the Wind as well? He was, he did have that involvement as well. Mm. I didn't, I won't show sure yeah. whether to how, to how to place him for that one or, or, or not because obviously not all directors we put in, which is our yeah. really weird way of doing things. Another Brian also uh, is making their fifth appearance Brian Worth, who was in Last Holiday, Peeping Tom, Room at the Top, and Scrooge. So he obviously had some maybe uh, a connection with uh, Alistair Sim perhaps yeah. Uh, yeah. to help him in. I've got one person making their sixth appearance. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I've, I've, it's really just, I've just spotted someone. I know where this is going. <laughs> You've I've, spotted, I've spotted somebody, it. I've spotted it, yeah. Okay, keep going. Well, we've got a couple to go before then. So, sixth appearance, Arthur Sandifer, um, yeah. which sounds like a made-up name, but honestly, yeah. this time it isn't. 
Uh, Dan Busters, Doctor in the House, uh, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, and One Good Term. And then somebody making their seventh appearance, John Welsh, Always Rains on a Sunday, Dunkirk, Lavender Hill Mob, Man Who Never Was, Room at the Top, and Revenge of Frankenstein. And then there's one person making their 13th appearance. Tell us who that is, Scott. <laughs> well, it, it's the man in pub, uncredited. It's, it's the legendary Mr. Victor Harrington. <laughs> Oh, it is. Fantastic. I've got to go oh. back and look at it now because I didn't <laughs> spot him at all. <laughs> Are you yeah. going to rattle off the uh, the other twelve? Or... Go on, go on, please. <laughs> Carry on, regardless. Doctor No, from Wish You Would Love, Georgie Girl, Gideon's Day, Chris Fowl, Man Who Haunted Himself, Night to Remember, The Reckoning, The Rebel, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Trouble in Store. Is he seconds? <laughs> No, someone uh, overtook uh, him last time I was on. Yeah, Guy Standing is on 14, you, you're right, Anthony. Yeah. Guy Standing, uh, right, right. Guy Standing, yeah. The guy from, from Scarborough. So, yeah, so he, he gets him one step closer towards the, the, the front running again, Victor. Uh, but he's level with Marion Stone. No, he haven't. No, no. He's gone um, quiet recently, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he has wasn't been he always quite, yeah, Wasn't he always quite quiet? <laughs> his films. Not yeah, a man of a lot of Yeah, in fairness, he, he, you know, he, he was, I don't think he's ever had a speaking part in any of the films. No, absolutely seen. not. Uh, no. Yeah, just going back to what I was saying before about the first performances of This as a Player were actually done in Moscow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, Because uh, one where there wasn't a suitable venue or because or he, he wrote it in a week to J.B. Priestley. There wasn't anywhere that was like available to put it on straight away, whereas uh, they, they had the space in Moscow, so they did two separate productions over there a, a year before it eventually got onto the stage over here in the UK. But, you know, the first production over here, instead of Alistair Sim playing the inspector, they had Ralph Richardson. I saw a photo of it when oh, I was yeah. in the And who else was in the cast that I thought was a contemporary of this? But played Eric, I think. Oh, okay. I played Eric. There was uh, Ali Guinness. Oh, Ali Guinness, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I remembered I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Which I think would be quite good because uh, we've seen him playing drunk before. And I think <laughs> that's that's quite nice to see uh, a, a drunk Ali Guinness, uh, to be perfectly honest. Also had uh, Margaret Layton playing um, Sheila, the daughter of the family. Um, which, you know, she's obviously a name that we know and, and appreciate. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, Harry Andrews was in it as well as the, the prospective son-in-law. So, you know, how how different it would have been on screen filmed with those. And I, I think Ralph Richardson would have done a, a, a good job. Um, mm. But I can't say I, I would have preferred him to Alistair Sim. I think Alistair Sim really nailed it. Maybe it's just because we see him in it now and we're so used to the, the fact that that is, you know, but... Um, he definitely, um, I think, owns it, as it were. So it was quite a, a, an expansive cast, like you say, because otherwise if it had just kept to the way that the play was done, there would have been, what, seven people, presumably like that? I mean, it, that's, that's incredible. I would never have dreamed that <laughs> you would have that many names because I thought, <laughs> I was watching it thinking there's only about six people in this, but I suppose, you know, crowd <laughs> scenes and all that, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. You know, literally joking aside, I mean, what's that, seven or eight people that were in the night to remember were in, in this? As always. always. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. And I know you mentioned we don't usually sort of include directors, but Guy Hamilton, who directed this, yeah, probably mm. have been inducted, wouldn't he, if we were going to include him? Because he did Goldfinger. Oh, well, no, because we haven't done... Well, no, he, he will be at some point, but this is really his, his third, first appearance because we haven't really done anything of his before. Goldfinger. Um, 
Goldfinger, yeah, sorry. Did he Goldfinger? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that was his first Bond. Yeah. What other Bond did he do? Remember the Golden Gun, Diamonds of Forever, and Live and Let Die. He might have done ah. Yeah. Oh, so he was the uh, Connery and the uh, Mark. Wow. Yeah, he's sort of that that middle period of the crossover bit, sort of bit there as well. Oh, I'd love to hear what he thought about like the differences between working with. Him. That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, because he's yeah. he's he was the first one to do multiple sort of like Bond movies, I think. And he did. I think Terence second... Young did the first two, but then he didn't do any other ones. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and then um, he did the second Harry Palmer. I think he did a few. Oh, that's yeah, funeral right. in Berlin. Yeah, he did funeral right. in Berlin. Yeah. So Battle, of Britain, yeah. Battle of Britain. God, that that would fill up the village world of fame, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would. Yeah. <laughs> God, blimey. That's, that's, that's why I'm avoiding bringing that to the table. So I thought, oh, this has got quite a, a small cast, so it won't trouble me too much for the uh, village hall of fame. <laughs> How wrong Obviously, you were. Obviously, yeah, I was I was slightly wrong on that one. I need to pick something a lot more obscure that's just got nobody in it that's been anything else ever. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, when it comes to Battle of Britain or something like that, it, it just is an avalanche. So I've got to gird my loins ready for it. To be honest. I think I think the one that I, we sort of agreed on, and I think you're aware of this one, Anthony, is, mm. is the film called The Wrong Box. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I may have seen that. Not Which sure. I think has, has, was literally, I think, deliberately got as many people in it as possible, famous faces. I'm sure it was. Everybody's in that. Absolutely everybody. Or even something like. Um, those magnificent men in their flying machines or something like that where there's lots and lots of different situations and different characters going on. Stephen's going to have his work cut out on any of those sort of movies. What about um, yeah. A Bridge Too Far or is that an American production? No, that'll count as British. British yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we'll, we'll count. That'll that. be another big one. My, my favourite war film, actually. Bridge and, too unless, far. unless we do the shortened version, which is A Bridge Too Far. <laughs> And on that note, uh... <laughs> no, but no, it's, it, as, you, as Anthony pointed out, with uh, a night to remember, we've got as far as people who, who are the either two or more appearances on this show. I think there's over 200 people who are in a night to remember. Really? Who, uh, wow. Yeah. So, which is considerable. This today is us ticking over from over the 400 mark as far as people having three or more appearances in the. Uh, really? Yeah. Jesus, that is incredible. That's, that's acts, Five years. Acts, actors, not including directors and and, yeah, yeah. and producers and stuff. It's we've ticked over. We've got I think four hundred and two. I think it was when I counted it. <laughs> we have created wow. a monster, and and thankfully your your finger is on the pulse of this monster, my my friend, because you you're reining this in with this. Please don't lose the spreadsheet for God. Yeah, I hope you've got that file <laughs> saved. You should send a copy to other around to various people to make sure it's saved. Yeah. It was on a. Yeah. Two- Doc or something, wasn't it, mate? It is, yeah. I should check. I can make sure it's uh, copied over. Yeah, to, to be, uh, I, I think if I lost it, I, I'm not sure I'd have the, the will to start <laughs> from scratch and do it all over again, to be honest. No, thank you. I know it's a bit of an effort to try and keep all that together. And and we just didn't realise five years ago, we just thought, oh, there'll be a few people now and again popping in. But 400 inductees in five oh, years. Brilliant. That's incredible. Thank you, mate. Um, without giving too much away about the ending, I was just a bit, not bemused, I'm trying to think of the right word, but it was just like, where was this movie going or even the source material? Because as I said at the beginning, he sort of starts off as what you think is going to be sort of like a typical Agatha Christie type murder investigation. Mm. And you get this supernatural element. But as, as Stephen pointed out, there isn't that supernatural element or this air of real mystery, not supernatural as such. Because mm. as Stephen pointed out, the inspector in, 
in the original source material comes in through the front door and leaves through the front door. Whereas in this one, he sort of appears at the French windows and the empty rocking chair is the last we see of him. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Is it trying to be something else, this movie? I feel like it is, yeah. And I, I was trying to think, you know, we always talk about... Um, People in those days went to the cinema for a good night out and they kind of wanted a neat ending. So I wonder what they would have thought of this and, and whether, you know, trying to cast your mind back to 1954, if the average person going to the cinema, would they have been talking about this the next day at breakfast or whatever and thinking, well, that was a bit weird. You know, I wonder whether audiences would have been put off by not getting a sort of a neat resolution. But I, I think it's just about that sort of unseen presence and it's it's your conscience basically, isn't it? It's, it's their conscience arriving. It, it reminded me sort of like an extended version of a Tales of the Unexpected. Mm. Oh yeah, imagine, yeah. Imagine that condensed into thirty minutes, and that was your ending. Yeah, I mean, I'd seen this film before, but I was trying to imagine if I'd been seeing it for the first time yesterday. I would have been expecting some, probably some sort of violent confrontation, you know, right. in, in line with Agatha Christie, that there would have been some death at the, at the end or something. But I hadn't remembered the ending, like I said, and it was a real nice surprise. You God would have God. expected it to be that, like you have with Agatha Christie or some others, you would have expected that just as he's, you know, getting to the denouement, that's when the, the police turn up to arrest somebody or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You would have expected something like that to happen more conventionally, absolutely. And I do, I do think mm. that the cinema going public at the time you think what other things there might have been had on at the cinema and the fact that this is basically a play transferred onto the screen which means there's not a lot of action in it it's a lot of dialogue um i can imagine it, it's much more well regarded in retrospect than it was actually by yeah. the, the people um who were you know paying their couple of pence to go to the cinema for a night out mm. like you said so at the end of the play because i did see it once but i don't remember it that well so how was it resolved i guess anyone he, going to wanting to see the play can cover their ears now but <laughs> i'll fast forward but yeah how, how was that resolved then or was it resolved rather than the the mystery of of him leaving in in you know a rocking chair in this case and just uh, the disappearance from a a locked room as it were you know he still have that there's a phone call from the infirmary and etc but he leaves you know conventionally leaves uh, which i think leaves a bit of a of a possibility that he could go out the front door and, and sprint down to the nearest phone box and, and phone, <laughs> yeah, phone yeah. And phone pretending to be, so that perhaps um, there's a loophole or, or a gap that's been plugged by not having him do that. But no, it's more conventionally, just he leaves and there's that left hanging in, in the air with mm. Inspector Go, Inspector Pool just having pricked their consciences. And yeah, the hopefully... good thing about that, when he leaves, it gives you that literally that couple of minutes before the phone call where you're given the chance to see if the characters have actually learned anything from the experience or changed. Mm. And not surprisingly, a lot of them haven't learned anything at all. It's, it's a sense of relief generally. Through yeah. It's, it's, they fall when they get that phone call and um, they forget that he's apparently in the other room uh, locked mm. in there, or at least mm. inescapable. They're too busy with the relief or mm. some of them saying, well, hold on, you learned something. Let's, you know, keep that lesson. There is, as you say, there is that, you know, a minute or two where they're actually showing their that where they're ending up as characters before then the realization that there's a bit more to this. And I think it leaves it open-ended then about whether that, that's going to change some of the people's minds who weren't redeemed by it would actually then be redeemed. 
but that's I think one of the joys of this is that open-endedness that question mark that that ability to have your interpretation of it rather than it being uh, neatly sewn up and I do think yeah. that's one of the things that ourselves uh, speaking for, the, for you two as well as me which is perhaps wrong of me but I think looking back on certain films the ones that do play it a bit more clever do leave things where there's interpretation and open-ended ideas are the ones that we find more intriguing looking back than the ones that are, are neatly sewn up at the end because mm. obviously we like to we like to hear our own voices talking about our opinions about what it could and couldn't mean but also I think our sensibilities uh, in the modern uh, era is that we, we like films that aren't a, a, a neat narrative all the time. I know sometimes you do want that, such as Scott mm. and one of his favourite films, uh, San Andreas, but um, which which wraps up nicely at the end. But uh, you know, there's other films that we you know, still enjoy now, and as you say, there's things that are, are still elsewhere that we enjoy. I certainly enjoy things like on television, Inside Number Nine greatly enjoy that every time and you know willing to wait it's just like rainbow valley i'm willing to wait for as long as it takes because i know i'm going to get something good when it arrives and i think that owes a certain debt to, to things like this where there's a, a there's a bit of spook in there but without it being really pushed in your face and it's, it's leaving you thinking and wondering and thinking oh this isn't quite what it seems what i liked in general about the whole film was going into it knowing that it was a adaptation of a stage production it didn't fall into that trap of it being stagey and obvious that it was a, a stage adaptation the use of flashbacks obviously yes. weren't yeah they weren't in the original script as such and they are equally well written as the stuff you expect around the dining table. I think the woman that played Eva was absolutely fantastic. We haven't really spoken about her. We've only really spoken about the family and Alice the Sin. She was brilliant, absolutely brilliant in this. And it was perfect casting throughout. There was only one thing, I think. When he was showing the photographs, I think it happened at least one occasion. The camera just zoomed in on whoever's face it was, and you got a dun 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 bit of music. That went with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was there was a bit of that I think, which is the sensibility of the time that the the music changed, or there was a a, a crescendo at the mm. point at which there were you know <laughs> there were being shown the photo each time. It was almost like as you say, giving that that fanfare mm. uh, and that is one of the, the the very minor criticisms you could perhaps have of this it's a it's an amusing um thing to to look at with regards to how things were done at the time it was uh, that emphasis which felt was necessary whereas nowadays you wouldn't feel it was needed uh, and maybe in quite the opposite but no i think the elaboration on the original source material for the film i think has been a, a benefit mm. um i haven't i haven't actually seen anything anywhere with regards to how jb Priestley regarded this film and, and obviously its elaboration yeah. Um, whether he whether he felt it was good or or gave his nod of approval for it or whether he felt the mess of his um original material and wasn't happy about that I don't know but I think it would cheerless to not recognise that it has enhanced it I I would say having seen even though it's an amateur dramatics version of the 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 play um I do think this is this is better it's it's fleshed it out and it's it's much better for it and, and any, yeah because I was gonna say any thought any sort of final thoughts on this mate. Well, just quickly on that actress, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know why she didn't have more of a career. I did see an interview with her actually, 
yesterday. Mm. I think she yes. was acting right up into her old age, wasn't she? She was in things like Bergerac and stuff like that, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, she doc- moved to and TV. Probably in, pro- probably in Doctors and, and yeah. Casualty and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Mm. No, no, I really enjoyed it, yeah. I guess the play is basically, I suppose, a morality play, isn't it, they'd call it. Yeah, it's very good. Like I say, I think it's really Alice Sims' film. You know, the mm-hmm. writing's pretty good, but just just that look in his eye and that whole, <laughs> that whole aura he has of all-knowing and mischievous, as you said, yeah. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It's great. I mean, we could have had somebody playing like a, a hard-nosed detective mm. you know, sitting there giving like a typical, not Hercule Poirot, but if you could imagine another great character actor at the time and, and giving a totally different performance to Alistair Sim. Alistair Sim just has to be Alistair Sim. It's that somebody mentioned mm. that it's in your hangdog expression. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's almost an element of sadness, but... He's also got, as I said earlier, that twinkle in his eye that he knows everything and he's not revealing it until he has to because the family are doing that job for him. Mm. Yeah, I think Alistair Sim doing his usual avuncular performance where mm. how he just comes across that sort of slight mischief but also uh, knowing behind it all has got the perfect balance and the perfect expression there's there's mm. so much he manages to get across in this film without saying any more than he needs to do is uh, quite a lot of his dialogue is that he's just a some short sentence to basically mm. tease the others into elaborating even if it's against their wishes so uh, great writing I would say definitely which is not just J.B. Priestley it's also the, the person who adapted it but mm. I do think that the yeah, Alistair Sims performance is what really lifts it to the next level yeah absolutely and Scrooge is visited by ghosts and now he becomes one so there is that he's, as well he's gone up yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's, he's uh, yeah he's, he's become uh, what he most feared yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen this was your like 400th viewing was it still as good yeah every time I watch it it's better I would say I mean I one of those you try not to watch too often because you don't want to spoil it for yourself so I mean I watch it I think once a year mm-hmm. um, I think I've watched it I've watched it twice within the past six months because I, I, I have watched it uh, more recently which is kind part of the provocation for me bringing it to the table because right. when I watched it I thought I think we need to finally do this and I think it's an Anthony mm. episode um, <laughs> you know I'm happy with how he, he has responded to it uh, my faith, faith was actually in the right place there um, <laughs> but norm, normally I try and leave it just to, to once a year it's a uh, uh, yeah it's at least 20 times I've I've seen it just because it's it's one of the films I've seen most often I must I must say and it's not and it doesn't don't stick around for too long either I mean it's quite a, a short film really well, no, yeah. so no it's it's every time I watch it there's little bits that I pick up on even if it's just a a, a look from Alistair Sim um, or something, it, it um, does enhance it. So absolutely, I think this is something that you know I would always try and encourage people to to go and see it. Unfortunately, I think it might be spoiled for some of the people younger than us, particularly mm-hmm. over currently school age, because it's now on the syllabus as a play to read. <laughs> I think there's a massive problem in way with which is a completely different subject with. with studying plays as literature because they're not meant to be read they're meant to be seen performed but that's a completely different yeah. different argument but the worry is you know whenever you, you you go and study something it sometimes spoils it doesn't it so um i think that some people might not be able to appreciate this because they've been forced <laughs> by the school <laughs> I, into, I, remember, into I remember having a conversation with a friend of ours Stephen, uh joe tom's other half who yes yeah. 
an English teacher. And yeah. I just happened to mention to her how much I loved not only the movie of To Kill a Mockingbird, but also the book. It's one of my favourite books because I studied mm. it school and her face just dropped she went i can't stand that book i have to talk about that week in week out year after year and it's ruined it for her yeah it's yeah. one of those isn't it like of mice and men is another one that mm. just seems to be i mean i guess more in america but <laughs> you could absolutely kill that because i love that story i think it's fantastic yeah. and i've yeah. never sort of studied it quite i haven't no. for that reason yeah yeah and i love the um i think it's 1939 38 39 the one with burgess meredith yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's Long Chaney, yeah. Lenny, isn't it? I think absolutely brilliant film. Anthony, was was Stephen right? This was a good pick for you, mate, because it sounds like you you enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had seen it quite a few times, in fact. Mm. So I do remember it, like I said at the beginning, taping it off the telly and seeing it. So I, I came to it sort of knowing. But yeah, I'd completely forgotten the ending, which is good. You know, it's a nice little yeah. bonus there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I watched it and actually remembered it this time. Uh, <laughs> <because> <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. I think it was two years ago on Letterboxd. I had no recollection of anything. When did when did you watch it this time around? Friday, two days ago. Right. So, you know, give it a week. You'll probably have forgotten it again. It'll be a complete mystery. So just remind me to watch it again. It'll be like watching the whole movie <laughs> again for the first time. <laughs> OK. All around thumbs up, I think, for an inspector calls there. Yes. We three are going to get together once again, and I believe it's my turn to choose the movie. So let's take a little break, and we'll be back with what we're watching next time. So that was in Inspector Calls, which was Stephen's choice this time round. So it's my turn for when the three of us get together. Now, last time when Anthony picked, it was a, a late 80s comedy, which was a fish called Wanda, wasn't it, mate? I think so. And then I If did, as well. Yes, we did If after that. But I'm going back to the late 80s for a comedy. In the early days, there was a certain north-south divide, Stephen. I would tend to pick southern or London-based movies, and you would be the man that would tend to pick the North northern dramas and comedies it's, it's yeah still happens. Uh, inspector carl's is best in the north isn't it so. well i'm i'm going to cross the border i've got my passport <gasps> I've had my jabs. Coming up to Yorkshire in 1987, I thought I'd seen this. And it wasn't until it was advertised on Talking Pictures TV as one of their big movies over Christmas. I genuinely looked at it and thought, you know what? I know bits of this and I haven't seen it. So I've bought the Blu-ray, Rita Sue and Bob 2. Uh... <laughs> it was on last night, wasn't it? Was it? <laughs> yeah. Reason being, when you look at the cast, it was the starting point for people like Siobhan Finnan and uh, Michelle Holmes, I think, had been in Coronation Street, and George Costigan. They're the three main people in it. Mm. And Leslie um, Sharp's in it, isn't she? Leslie Sharp's in it. There's there's lots of famous faces uh, in the background. It's directed by Alan Clark. You know. Yeah, I was absolutely amazed to find that out. So I'm looking forward to this because I haven't seen it, but I keep looking at trailers and short clips of it, thinking, why haven't I seen this? You know, I should have done. Stephen, you. Have you seen it, mate? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. I've, <laughs> since I recall seeing it round about the time it came out, and I've seen it, I think, probably two times since then. So. I think I'm about the same, yeah. Okay, so we're all right with that then, guys, as our next choice, yeah? Mm. Okay, yeah. right. And I can, do a tra- I can do a translation of what they're saying as well. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right, I've got subtitles on the Blu-ray. I'll be fine. That's all right, then. (laughs) 
before we go, just need to thank Anthony once again for being a very special guest this morning. You're welcome. Glass signing on John Lennon, film gold, life and life only. Thank you. I didn't have to say <laughs> my next. Well, no. Last time you didn't get the opportunity, did you? The problem is it's so impossible to come up with anything different to say about it. Yeah, so there you go. They're brilliant. That's all you need to say. But before we go, is there a John Lennon or Beatles connection to Inspector Calls? We've had an hour or so to think about this, guys. Could we think of anything? No, yeah. I couldn't find anything, no. to be honest. No, for once, but maybe you'll find something for Rita Sue and Bob too. Well, oh, blimey. Have a little think in between, and if we can think of something, we'll bring it up when we review it. <laughs> okay. Stephen, thank you for being here today. Thank you for all your hard work on the Village Hall of Fame, as usual, mate. No, my pleasure, and uh, it's uh, always good to do an episode of Anthony. Indeed. Well, this has been Real Britannia. I'll see you both very soon. Take care, guys. Goodbye. Take care. Positive shot. Good luck. Thank you. British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>